You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The New Spirituality and the Christ Experience of the Twentieth Century, Collected Works, Volume 200. Uh, they were given in Dornach between the 17th and the 31st of October, 1920. This is Lecture 1, given in Dornach on the 17th of October, 1920. In the lectures given here during the course on history, Several things were mentioned which, particularly at the present time, it is especially important to consider. With regard to the historical course of humanity's development, the much-debated question mentioned to begin with was whether the outstanding and leading individual personalities are the principal driving forces in this development, or whether the most important things are brought about by the masses. In many circles, this has always been a point of contention, and the conclusions have been drawn more from sympathy and antipathy than from real knowledge. This is one fact which, in a certain sense, I should like to mention as being very important. Another fact which, from a look at history, I should like to mention for its importance is the following. At the beginning of the 19th century, Wilhelm von Humboldt appeared with a definite declaration stipulating that history should be treated in such a way that one would not only consider the individual facts which can be outwardly observed in the physical world, but out of an encompassing, synthesizing force would see what is at work in the unfolding of history, which can only be found by someone who knows how to get a total view of the facts in what, in a sense, is a poetic way, but in fact produces a true picture. Attention was also drawn to how, in the course of the 19th century, it was precisely the opposite historical mode of thought and approach which was then particularly developed, and that it was not the ideas in history that were pursued, but only a sense that was developed for the external world of facts. Attention was also drawn to the fact that with regard to this last question, one can only come to clarity through spiritual science, because spiritual science alone can uncover the real driving forces of the historical evolution of humanity. A spiritual science of this kind was not yet accessible to Humboldt. He spoke of ideas, but ideas indeed have no driving force of their own. Ideas are, as such, are abstractions, as I mentioned here yesterday. And anyone who might wish to find ideas as the driving forces of history would never be able to prove that ideas really do anything because they are nothing of real substantiality and only something of substantiality can do something. Spiritual science points to real spiritual forces that are behind the sensible physical facts. And it is in real spiritual forces such as these that the propelling forces of history lie, even though these spiritual forces will have to be expressed for human beings through ideas. But we come to clarity concerning these things only when, from a spiritual scientific standpoint, we look more deeply into the historical development of humanity and will do so today in such a way that through our considerations certain facts come to us which precisely for a discerning judgment of the situation of modern humanity will prove to be of importance. I have often mentioned that spiritual science, if it looks at history, would actually have to pursue a symptomatology, a symptomatology constituted from the fact that one is aware that behind what takes its course, as the stream of physical sensible facts, lie the driving spiritual forces. But everywhere in historical development, 
There are times when what has real being and essence, German das eigentlich Wesenhafte, comes as a symptom to the surface and can be judged discerningly from the phenomena only if one has the possibility to penetrate more deeply from one's awareness of these phenomena into the depths of historical development. I would like to clarify this by a simple diagram. Let us suppose that this is a flow of historical facts, and there's a picture. The driving forces lie, for ordinary observation, below the flow of these facts. And if the eye of the soul, EYE, observes the flow in this way, then the real activity of the driving forces would lie beneath it. But there are significant points in this flow of facts. And these significant points are distinguished by the fact that what is otherwise hidden comes here to the surface. Thus we can say, here in a particular phenomenon, which must only be properly evaluated, it was possible to become aware of something which otherwise is at work everywhere, but which does not show itself in such a significant manifestation. Let us assume that this took place in some year for Europe, let us say for Western Europe. was of course at work before this and worked on afterward, but it did not manifest itself in such a significant way in the time before and after as it did here. If one points to a way of looking at history like this, a way which looks to significant moments, such a method would be in complete accord with Goetheanism. For Goethe wished in general that all perception of the world should be directed to significant points, and then from what could be seen from such points, the remaining content of world events be recognized. Goethe says of this that within the abundance of facts, the important thing is to find a significant point from which the neighboring areas can be viewed and from which much can be deciphered. So, let us take this year, 800 A.D. We can point here to a fact in the history of Western European humanity, which, from the point of view of the usual approach to history, might seem insignificant, which one would perhaps not find worthy of attention for what is usually called history, but which, nevertheless, for a deeper view of humanity's development, is indeed significant. Around this year there was a kind of learned theological argument between the man who was a sort of court philosopher of the Frankish realm, Alcuin, and a Greek also living at that time in the kingdom of the Franks. The Greek, who was naturally at home in the particular soul constitution of the Greek peoples, which he had inherited, had wanted to reach a discerning judgment of the principles of Christianity, and had come to the conception of redemption. He put the question, to whom in the redemption through Christ Jesus was the ransom actually paid? He, the Greek thinker, came to the solution that the ransom had been paid to death. Thus, in a certain sense, it was a sort of redemption theory that this Greek developed from his thoroughly Greek mode of thinking, which was now just becoming acquainted with Christianity. The ransom was paid to death by the cosmic powers. Alcuin, who stood at that time in that theological stream, which then became the determining one for the development of the Roman Catholic Church of the West, debated in the following way about what the Greek had argued. He said, Ransom can only be paid to a being who really exists, but death has no reality. Death is only the outer limit of reality. Death itself is not real, and therefore the ransom money could not have been paid to death. Now, criticism of Alcuin's way of thinking is not what matters here, for to someone who, to a certain extent, can see through the interrelations of the facts, the view that death is not something real resembles the view which says cold is not something real, it is just a decrease in warmth, it is only a lesser warmth. Because the cold isn't real, 
I won't wear a winter coat in winter because I'm not going to protect myself against something that isn't real. But we will leave that aside. We want rather to take the argument between Alcuin and the Greek purely positively and will ask what was really happening there. For it is indeed quite noticeable that it is not the concept of redemption itself that is discussed. It is not discussed in such a way that in a certain sense both personalities, the Greek and the Roman Catholic theologian, accept the same point of view. But in such a way that the Roman Catholic theologian shifts the standpoint entirely before he takes it up at all. He does not go on speaking in the way he had just done, but moves the whole problem into a completely different direction. He asks, is death something real or not? And objects that indeed death is not real. This directs us at the outset to the fact that two views are clashing here, which arise out of completely different constitutions of soul. And indeed this is the case. The Greek continued, as it were, the direction which in the Greek culture had basically faded away between Plato and Aristotle. In Plato there was still something alive of the ancient wisdom of humanity, that wisdom which takes us across to the ancient Orient, where indeed in ancient times a primal wisdom had lived, but which had then fallen more and more into decadence. In Plato, we are, if we are able to understand him properly, we find the last offshoots, if I can so call them, of this primal oriental wisdom. And then, like a rapidly developing metamorphosis, Aristotelianism sets in, which fundamentally presents a completely different constitution of soul from the Platonic one. Aristotelianism represents a completely different element in the development of humanity from Platonism. And if we follow Aristotelianism further, it too takes on different forms, different metamorphoses, but all of which have a recognizable similarity. Thus we see how Platonism lives on like an ancient heritage in this Greek who has to contend against Alcuin, and how in Alcuin, on the other hand, Aristotelianism is already present. And we are directed, by looking at these two individuals, to that fluctuation which took place on European soil between two, uh, one cannot really say worldviews, but two human constitutions of soul, one of which has its origin in ancient times in the Orient, and another, which we do not find in the Orient, but which, entering in later, arose in the central regions of civilization and was first grasped by Aristotle. In Aristotle, however, this only sounds a first quiet note, for much of Greek culture was still alive in him. It develops then with particular vehemence in the Roman culture, within which it had been prepared long before Aristotle, and indeed before Plato. So that we see how, since the 8th century BC, on the Italian peninsula, a particular culture, or the first hints of it, was being prepared alongside that which lived on the Greek peninsula as a sort of last offshoot of the oriental constitution of soul. And when we go into the differences between these two modes of human thought, we find important historical impulses. For what is expressed in these ways of thinking went over later into the feeling life of human beings, into the configuration of human actions, and so on. Now, we can ask ourselves, so what was living in that which developed in ancient times as a worldview in the Orient, and which then, like a latecomer, found its last offshoots in Platonism, and indeed still in Neoplatonism? It was a highly spiritual culture, which arose from an inner perception living preeminently in pictures, in imaginations, but pictures not permeated by full consciousness, not yet permeated by the full eye-consciousness of human beings. In the spiritual life of the ancient Orient, of which the Veda and Vedanta are the last echoes, 
stupendous pictures opened up of what lives in the human being as the spiritual. But it existed in a... I beg you not to misunderstand the word and not to confuse it with usual dreaming. It existed in a dreamlike, dim way, so that this soul life was not permeated, German durchwelt, and irradiated, durchstrahlt, by what lives in the human being when he becomes clearly conscious of his I, capital, and his own being. The Oriental was well aware that his being existed before birth, that it returns through death to the spiritual world in which it existed before birth or conception. The Oriental gazed on that which passed through births and deaths. But he did not see as such that inner feeling which lives in the I am. It was as if it were dull and hazy, as though poured out in a broad perception of the soul, German Gesamtseelenmannschauung. Maybe that again, Gesamtseelenanschauung, excuse me, which did not concentrate to such a point as that of the I experience. Maybe that sentence again. It was as if it were dull and hazy, as though poured out in a broad perception of the soul, which did not concentrate to such a point as that of the I experience. Into that, then, did the Oriental actually gaze when he possessed his instinctive perception? One can still feel how this Oriental soul constitution was completely different from that of later humanity, when, for an understanding of this, and perhaps prepared through spiritual science, one sinks meditatively into those remarkable writings which are ascribed to Dionysius the Areopagite. I will not go into the question of the authorship now. I have already spoken about it on a number of occasions. Nothingness, German das Nichts, is still spoken of there as a reality, and the existence of the external world, in the way one views it in ordinary consciousness, is simply contrasted against this nothingness as a different reality. This talk of nothingness then continues. In Scotus Origina, who lived at the court of Charles the Bald, one still finds echoes of it, and we find the last echo then in the 15th century in Nicholas of Cusa. But what was meant by the nothingness one finds in Dionysius the Areopagite, and of that which the Oriental spoke of as something self-evident to him? This fades then completely. What was this nothingness for the Oriental? It was something real for him. He turned his gaze to the world of the senses around him and said, This sense world is spread out in space, flows in time, and in ordinary life one says that what is extended in space and flows in time is something. But what the Oriental saw, that which was a reality for him, which passes through births and deaths, was not contained in the space in which the minerals are to be found, in which the plants unfold, the animals move, and the human being as a physical being moves and acts. And it was also not contained in that time in which our thoughts, feelings, and will impulses occur. The Oriental was fully aware that one must go beyond this space in which physical things are extended and move and beyond this time in which our soul forces of ordinary life are active, one must enter a completely different world, that world which, for the external existence of time and space, is a nothing, but which nevertheless is something real. The Oriental sensed something in contrast to the phenomena of the world which the European still senses at most in the realm of real numbers. When a European has 50 francs, he has something. If he spends 25 francs of this, he still has 25 francs. If he then spends 15 francs, he still has 10. If he spends this, he has nothing. If now he continues to spend, he has 5, 10, 15, 25 francs in debts. He still has nothing, but indeed he has something very real, when instead of simply an empty wallet, he has twenty-five or fifty francs in debts. In the real world, 
it also signifies something very real if one has debts. There is a great difference in one's whole situation in life between having nothing and having fifty francs worth of debts. These debts of fifty francs are forces just as influential on one's situation in life as, on the other side, and in an opposite sense, are fifty francs of credit. In this area, the European will probably admit to the reality of debts, for in the real world there always has to be something there when one has debts. The debts that one has oneself may still seem a very negative amount, but for the person to whom they are owed, they are a very positive amount. So, when it is not just a matter of the individual, but of the world, the opposite side of zero from the credit side is truly something very real. The Oriental felt, not because he somehow speculated about it, but because his perception necessitated it, he felt, here on the one side, I experience that which cannot be observed in space or in time, something which, for the things and events of space and time, is nothing but which, nevertheless, is a reality, but a different reality. It was only through misunderstanding that there then arose what Occidental civilization gave itself up to under the leadership of Rome, the creation of the world out of nothing, with in quotes, nothing seen as absolute zero. In the Orient, where these things were originally conceived, the world does not arise out of nothing, but out of the reality I have just indicated. And an echo of what vibrates through all the Oriental way of thinking, right down to Plato, the impulse of eternity of an ancient worldview, lived in the Greek, who at the court of Charlemagne had to debate with Alcuin, And in this theologian, Alcuin, there lived a rejection of the spiritual life for which, in the Orient, this nothing was the outer form. And thus, when the Greeks spoke of death, whose causes lie in the spiritual world, as something real, Alcuin could only answer, but death is nothing, and therefore cannot receive ransom. You see, the whole polarity between the ancient Oriental way of thinking, reaching to Plato, And what followed later is expressed in this one significant moment when Alcuin debated at the court of Charlemagne with the Greek. For what was it that had meanwhile entered into European civilization since Plato, particularly through the spread of Romanism? There had entered that way of thinking which one has to comprehend through the fact that it is directed primarily to what the human being experiences between birth and death. And the constitution of soul which occupies itself primarily with the human being's experiences between birth and death is the logical legal one, the logical dialectical legal one. The Orient had nothing of a logical dialectical nature and least of all a legal one. The Occident brought logical, legal thinking so strongly into the Oriental way of thinking that we ourselves find religious feeling permeated with a legalistic element. In the Sistine Chapel in Rome, painted by the master hand of Michelangelo, we see looming toward us Christ as judge, giving judgment on the good and the evil. A legal, dialectical element has entered into the thoughts concerning the course of the world. This was completely alien to the Oriental way of thinking. There was nothing there like guilt and atonement or redemption. For in this Oriental way of thinking was precisely that view of the metamorphosis through which the eternal element in the human being transforms itself through births and deaths. There was that which lives in the concept of karma. Later, however, everything was fixed into a way of looking at things which is actually only valid for and can only encompass life between birth and death. But this life between birth and death was just what had evaded the Oriental. He looked far more to the core of man's being. He had little understanding for what took place between birth and death.
and now within this Occidental culture, the way of thinking which comprehends primarily what takes place within the span between birth and death increased, and did so, through those forces possessed by the human being, by virtue of having clothed his soul and spirit nature with a physical and etheric body. In this constitution, in the inner experience of the soul and spirit element, and in the nature of this experience, which arises through the fact that one is submerged with one's soul and spirit nature in a physical body, comes the inner comprehension of the I, capital. This is why it happens in the Occident that the human being feels an inner urge to lay hold of his I as something divine. We see this urge to comprehend the I as something divine arise in the medieval mystics, in Eckhart, in Tauler, and in others. The comprehension of the I crystallizes out with full force in the middle or central culture. Thus we can distinguish between the Eastern culture, the time in which the eye is first experienced but dimly, and the middle or central culture, primarily that in which the eye is experienced. And we see how this eye is experienced in the most manifold metamorphoses. First of all, in that dim, dawning way in which it arises in Eckhart, Tauler, and other mystics, and then more and more distinctly during the development of all that can originate out of this eye culture. We then see how, within the eye culture of the center, another aspect arises. At then end of the 18th century, something comes to the fore in Kant. Read that again. At the end of the 18th century, something comes to the fore in Kant, which fundamentally, cannot be explained out of the onward flow of this I-culture. For what is it that arises through Kant? Kant looks at our perception, our apprehension, German Erkennen, of nature, and cannot come to terms with it. Knowledge of nature for him breaks down into subjective views. He does not penetrate as far as the I, despite the fact that he continually speaks of it, and even in some categories, in his perceptions of time and space, would like to encompass all nature through the eye. Yet he does not push through to a true experience of the eye. He also constructs a practical philosophy with the categorical imperative which is supposed to manifest itself out of unfathomable regions of the human soul. Here again, the eye does not appear. In Kant's philosophy, it is strange. The full weight of dialectics, of logical, dialectical, legal thinking is there, in which everything is tending toward the I, but he cannot reach the point of really understanding the I philosophically. There must be something preventing him here. Then comes Fichte, a pupil of Kant's, who with full force wishes his whole philosophy to well up out of the I and who through its simplicity presents as the highest tenet of his philosophy the sentence, I am. And everything that is truly scientific must follow from this I am. One should be able, as it were, to deduce, to read from this I am an entire picture of the world. Kant cannot reach the I am. Fichte immediately afterward, while still a pupil of Kant's, hurls the I am at him, and everyone is amazed. This is a pupil of Kant's speaking like this, and Fichte says, as far as he can understand it, Kant, if he could really think to the end, would have to think the same as me. It is so inexplicable to Fichte that Kant thinks differently from him, that he says, if Kant would only take things to their full conclusion, he would have to think as I do he too would have to come to the I Am. And Fichte expresses this even more clearly by saying, I would rather take the whole of Kant's critique for a random game of ideas haphazardly thrown together than to consider it the work of a human mind. If my philosophy did not logically follow from Kant's, 
Kant, of course, rejects this. He wants nothing to do with the conclusions drawn by Fichte. We now see how there follows on from Fichte what then flowered as German idealistic philosophy in Schelling and Hegel, and which provoked all the battles of which I spoke, in part in my lectures on the limits to a knowledge of nature. But we find something curious. We see how Hegel lives in a crystal-clear mental framework of the logical, dialectical, legal element, and draws from it a worldview, but a worldview that is interested only in what occurs between birth and death. You can go through the whole of Hegel's philosophy, and you will find nothing that goes beyond birth and death. It confines everything in world history, religion, art, and science solely to experiences occurring between birth and death. What then is the strange thing that happened here? Now, what came out in Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel, this strongest development of the central culture in which the eye came to full consciousness, to an inner experience, was still only a reaction, a last reaction to something else. For one can understand Kant only when one bears the following properly in mind. I am coming now to yet another significant point to which a great deal can be traced. You see, Kant was still, this is clearly evident from his earlier writings, a pupil of the rationalism of the 18th century, which lived with genius in Leibniz and pedantically in Wolff. One can see that for this rationalism, the important thing was not to come truly to a spiritual reality. Kant therefore rejected it, this thing in itself as he called it. But the important thing for him was to prove, sure proof. Kant's writings are remarkable also in this respect. He wrote his critique of pure reason in which he is actually asking, quote, how must the world be so that things can be proved in it, close quote. Not, quote, what are the realities in it, close quote. But he actually asks, quote, how must I imagine the world so that logically, dialectically, I can give proofs in it, close quote. This is the only point he is concerned with, and thus he tries in his prolegomena to give every future metaphysics which has a claim to being truly scientific a metaphysics for what in his way of thinking can be proven. Quote, away with everything else. The devil take the reality of the world. Just let me have the art of proving. What's it to me what reality is? If I can't prove it, I shall trouble myself over it. Close quote. Those individuals did not, of course, think in this way, who wrote books like, for, for example, Christian Wolff's Vernünftige Gedanken vom Gott der Welt und der Seele des Menschen, auch allen Dingen überhaupt. English reasoned thoughts on God, the world, and the soul of man, and all things generally. What mattered for them was to have a clean, self-contained system of proof, in the way that they see proof. Kant lived in this sphere. But there was still something there which, although an excrescence squeezed out of the world view of the center, nevertheless fitted into it. But Kant had something else which makes it inexplicable how he could become Fichte's teacher. And yet he gives Fichte a stimulus, and Fichte comes back at him with the strong emphasis of the I am, comes back indeed not with proofs, one would not look for these in Fichte, but with a fully developed inner life of soul. In Fichte there emerges with all the force of the inner life of soul, that which in the Wolfians and Leibnizians can seem insipid. Fichte constructs his philosophy in a wealth of pure concepts out of the I am but in him they are filled with life. So too are they in Schelling and in Hegel. So what then can, excuse me, so what then had happened with Kant, who was the bridge? Now, 
one comes to the significant point when one traces how Kant developed. Something else became of this pupil of Wolf by virtue of the fact that the English philosopher David Hume awoke him, as Kant himself says, out of his dull dogmatic slumber. What is it that entered Kant here, which Fichte could no longer understand? There entered into Kant here, it fitted badly in his case, because he was too involved with the culture of Central Europe, that which is now the culture of the West. This came to meet him in the person of David Hume, and it was here that the culture of the West entered Kant. And in what does the peculiarity of this culture lie? In the Oriental culture we find that the I still lives below, dimly, in that dreamlike state in the soul experiences which express themselves spread out in imaginative pictures. In the Western culture we find that in a certain sense the eye is smothered, German erdrückt, by the purely external phenomena, German tatsachen. The eye is indeed present, and is present not dimly, but bores itself into the phenomena. And here, for example, people develop a strange psychology. They do not talk here about the soul life in the way Fichte did, who wanted to work out everything from the one point of the eye, but they talk about thoughts which come together by association. People talk about feelings, mental pictures and sensations and say these associate, and also will impulses associate. One talks about the inner soul life in terms of thoughts which associate. Fichte speaks of the I. This radiates out thoughts. In the West, the I is completely omitted because it is absorbed, soaked up by the thoughts and feelings which one treats as though they were independent of it, associating and separating again. And one follows the life of the soul as though mental pictures linked up and separated. Read Spencer, read John Stuart Mill, read the American philosophers. When they come to talk of psychology, there is this curious view that does not exclude the eye, as in the Orient, because it is developed dimly there, but which makes full demand of the eye, letting it, however, sink down into the thinking, feeling, and willing life of the soul. One could say, in the Oriental the eye is still above thinking, feeling, and willing. It has not yet descended to the level of thinking, feeling, and willing. In the human being of the Western culture, the eye is already below this sphere. It is below the surface of thinking, feeling, and willing, so that it is no longer noticed. And thinking, feeling, and willing are then spoken of as independent forces. This is what, and there's a drawing. This is what came to Kant in the form of the philosophy of David Hume. Then the central region of the earth's culture still set itself against this with all force in Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel. After them, the culture of the West overwhelms everything that is there with Darwinism and Spencerism. One will only be able to come to an understanding of what is living in humanity's development if one investigates these deeper forces. One then finds that something developed in a natural way in the Orient, which actually was purely a spiritual life. In the central areas, something developed which was dialectical legal, which actually brought forth the idea of the state, because it is to this that it can be applied. It is such thinkers as Fichte, Schelling and Hegel, who with enormous sympathy construct a unified image, German Gebilde, of the state. But then a culture emerges in the West, which proceeds from a constitution of soul in which the eye is absorbed, takes its course below the level of thinking, feeling, and willing, and where in the mental and feeling life people speak of associations. If only one would apply this thinking to the economic life, that is its proper place. People went completely amiss when they started applying this thinking to something other than the economic life. There it is great, 
is of genius. And had Spencer, John Stuart Mill, and David Hume applied to the institutions of the economic life what they wasted on philosophy, it would have been magnificent. If the human beings living in Central Europe had limited to the state what is given them as their natural endowment, and if they had not at the same time also wanted thereby to include the spiritual life and the economic life, something magnificent could have come out of it. For with what Hegel was able to think, with what Fichte was able to think, one would have been able, had one remained within the legal political configuration, which in the threefold organism we wish to separate out as the structure of the state, to attain something truly great. But because there hovered before these minds the idea that they had to create a structure for the state, which included the economic life and the spiritual life, there arose only caricatures in the place of a true form for the state. And the spiritual life was, anyway, only a heritage of the ancient Orient. It was just that people did not know that they were still living with, from this heritage of the ancient East. The useful statements, for example, of Christian theology, indeed the useful statements still within our materialistic sciences, are either the heritage of the ancient East or a changeling of dialectical legal thinking, or are already adopted, as was done by Spencer and Mill, from the Western culture which is particularly suited for the economic life. Thus the spiritual thinking of the ancient Orient had been distributed over the earth, but in an instinctive way that is no longer of any use today. Because today it is decadent, it is dialectical, political thinking, which was rendered obsolete by the world catastrophe, World War I. For there was no one less suited to thinking economically than the pupils of Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel. When they began to create a state which, above all, was to become great through its economy, they had of necessity to fail, for this was not what, by nature, was endowed to them. In accordance with the historical development of humanity, spiritual thinking, political thinking, and economic thinking were apportioned to the East, the Center, and the West, respectively. But we have arrived at a point of humanity's development when understanding, a common understanding, must spread equally over all humanity, how can this come about? This can only happen out of the initiation culture, out of the new spiritual science, which does not develop one-sidedly, but considers everything that appears in all areas as a threefoldness that has evolved of its own accord. This science must really consider the threefold aspect also in social life, in this case as a threefoldness encompassing the whole earth. Spiritual science, however, cannot be extended through natural abilities. It can only be spread by people accepting those who see into these things, who can really experience the spiritual sphere, the political sphere, and the economic sphere as three separate areas. The unity of human beings all over the earth is due to the fact that they combine in themselves what was divided between three spheres. They themselves organize it in the social organism in such a way that it can exist in harmony before their eyes. This, however, can only follow from spiritual scientific training. We stand here at a point where we must say, in ancient times, we see individual personalities. We see them expressing in their words what was the spirit of the time. But when we examine it closely, in the Oriental culture, for example, we find that fundamentally their lives instinctively in the masses, excuse me, there lives instinctively in the masses a constitution of soul which in a remarkable, quite natural way was in a court with what these individuals spoke. This correspondence, however, became less and less. 
In our times we see the development of the opposite extreme. We see instincts arising in the masses which are the opposite of what is beneficial for humanity. We see things arising that absolutely call for the qualities that may arise in individuals who are able to penetrate the depths of spiritual science. No good will come from instincts, but only from the understanding that Dr. Unger also spoke of here, which, as is often stressed, every human being can bring toward the spiritual investigator if he really opens himself to healthy human reason. Thus there will come a culture in which the single individual, with his ever deeper penetration into the depths of the spiritual world, will be of particular importance, and in which the one who penetrates in this way will be valued, just as someone who works in some craft is valued. One does not go to the tailor to have boots made, or to the shoemaker to be shaved, so why should people go to someone else for what one needs as a worldview other than to the person who is initiated into it? And it is, indeed, just this that particularly today, in the most intense sense, is necessary for the good of human beings, even though there is a reaction against it, which shows how humanity still resists what is beneficial for it. This is the terrible battle, the grave situation in which we find ourselves. At no other time has there been a greater need to listen carefully to what individuals know concerning one thing or another, nor has there been a greater need for people with knowledge of specific subject areas to be active in social life, not from a belief in authority, but out of common sense, and out of agreement based on common sense. But, to begin with, the instincts opposite this, and people believe that some sort of good can be achieved from leveling everything. This is the serious battle in which we stand. Sympathy and antipathy are of no help here, nor is living in slogans. Only a clear observation of the facts can help For today great questions are being decided, the questions as to whether the individual or the masses have significance. In other times this was not important because the masses and the individual were in accord with one another. Individuals were, in a certain sense, simply speaking for the masses. We are approaching more and more that time when the individual must find completely within himself the source of what he has to find and which he has then to put into the social life. And what we are now seeing is only the last resistance against this validity of the individual and can ever larger and larger number of individuals. One can see plainly how that which spiritual science shows is also proved everywhere in these significant points. We talk of associations which are necessary in the economic life and use a particular thinking for this. This is developed in the culture of the West from letting thoughts associate. If one could take what John Stuart Mill does with logic, if one could remove those thoughts from that sphere and apply them to the economic life, they would fit there. The associations which would then come in there would be exactly those which do not fit into psychology. Even in what appears in the area of human development, spiritual science follows reality. Thus spiritual science, if fully aware of the seriousness of the present world situation, knows what a great battle is taking place between the threefold social impulse that can come from spiritual science and that which throws itself against this threefoldness as the wave of Bolshevism, which would lead to great harm amongst humanity. And there is no third element other than these two. The battle has to take place between these two. People must see this. Everything else is already decadent. Whoever looks with an open mind at the conditions in which we are placed 
must conclude that it is essential today to gather all our forces together so that this whole terrible, aramonic affair can be repulsed. This building stands here, incomplete though it is for the time being. Today we cannot get from the central countries that which for the most part, and in addition to what has come to us from the neutral states, has brought this building to this stage. We must have contributions from the countries of the former Entente. Understanding must be developed here for what is to become a unified culture containing spirit, politics, and economics. For people must get away from a one-sided tendency and must follow those who also understand something of politics and economics, who do not work only in dialectics, but also being engaged with economic impulses, have insight into the spiritual and do not want to create states in which the state itself can run the economy. The Western peoples will have to realize that something else must evolve in addition to the special gift they will have in the future with regard to forming economic associations. The skill in forming associations has so far been applied at the wrong end, that is, in the field of psychology. What must evolve is understanding of the political state element, which has other sources than the economic life and also of the spiritual element. But at present, the central countries lie powerless, so people in the western regions, one could not expect this of the Orient, will have to see what the purpose of this building is. It is necessary for us to consider what must be done so that real provision is made for a new culture that should be presented everywhere in the university education of the future. Here we have to show the way. In the foundation of the Waldorf schools, the culture has proved to be capable of bringing light into primary education. But for this we need the understanding support of the widest circles. Above all, we need the means. For everything which, in a higher or lower sense, is called a school, we need the frame of mind I have already tried to awaken at the opening of the Waldorf School in Stuttgart. I said in my opening speech there, quote, There is one Waldorf School. It is well and good that we have it, but for itself it is nothing. It is only something if, in the next quarter of a year, we build ten such Waldorf schools and then others. The world did not understand this. It had no money for such a thing. For it rests on the standpoint, oh, the ideals are too lofty, too pure for us to bring dirty money to them. Better to keep it in our pockets. That's the proper place for dirty money. The ideals, oh, they're too pure. One can't contaminate them with money. Of course, with purity of this kind, the embodiment of ideals cannot be attained if dirty money is not brought to them. And thus we have to consider that up to now we have stopped at one Waldorf school which cannot progress properly because in the autumn we found ourselves in great money difficulties. These have been obviated for the time being, but at Easter we shall be faced with them again, and then after a comparatively short time we will ask, should we give up? And we shall have to give up if before then an understanding is not forthcoming which dips vigorously into its pockets. It is thus a matter of awakening understanding in this respect. I don't believe that much understanding would arise if we were to say that we wanted something for the building in Dorna or some such thing as has been shown already. But, and one still finds understanding for this today, If one wants to create sanatoria or the like, one gets money, and as much as one wants. This is not exactly what we want. We don't want to build a host of sanatoria. We agree fully with creating them as far as they are necessary, but here it is a matter, above all, of nurturing that spiritual culture whose necessity will indeed prove itself through what this course has attempted to accomplish. This is what I tried to suggest to give a stimulus to what I expressed here a few days ago in the words 
World Fellowship of Schools. Our German friends have departed, but it is not a question of depending on them for this World Fellowship. It depends on those who, as friends, have come here, for the most part, from all possible regions of the non-German world, and who are still sitting here now, that they understand these words, World Fellowship of Schools, because it is vital that we found school upon school in all areas of the world, out of the pedagogical spirit which rules in the Waldorf School. We have to be able to extend this school until we are able to move into higher education of the kind we are hoping for here. For this, however, we have to be in a position to complete this building and everything that belongs to it, and be constantly able to support that which is necessary in order to work here, to be productive, to work on the further extension of all the separate sciences in the spirit of spiritual science. People ask one how much money one needs for all this. One cannot say how much, because there never is an uppermost limit. And of course we will not be able to found a world fellowship of schools simply by creating a committee of twelve or fifteen or thirty people who work out nice statutes as to how a world fellowship of schools of this kind should work. That is all pointless. I attach no value to programs or to statutes, but only to the work of active people who work with understanding. It will be possible to establish this world fellowship, well, we shall not be able to go to London for some time, in the Hague or some such place, if a basis can be created, and by other means if the friends who are about to go to Norway or Sweden or Holland or any other country, England, France, America and so on, awaken in every human being whom they can reach the well-founded conviction that there has to be a world fellowship of schools. It ought to go through the world like wildfire that a world fellowship must arise to provide the material means for the spiritual culture that is intended here. If one is able, in other matters, as a single individual, to convince possibly hundreds and hundreds of people Why should one not be able in a short time, for the decline is happening so quickly that we only have a short time, to have an effect on many people as a single individual, so that if one came to The Hague a few weeks later, one would see how widespread was the thought that, quote, the creation of a world fellowship of schools is necessary. It is just that there is no means for it, close quote. What we are trying to do from Dornach is an historical necessity. One will only be able to talk of the inauguration of this World Fellowship of Schools when the idea of it already exists. It is simply utopian to set up committees and found a World Fellowship. This is pointless. But to work from person to person and to spread quickly the realization, the well-founded realization, that it is so necessary, this is what must precede the founding. Spiritual science lives in realities. This is why it does not get involved with proposals of schemes for a founding, but points to what has to happen in reality. And human beings are indeed realities, so that such a thing has some prospects. So what is important here is that we finally learn from spiritual science how to stand in real life. I would never get involved with a simple utopian founding of the World Fellowship of Schools, but would always be of the opinion that this World Fellowship can only come about when a sufficiently large number of people are convinced of its necessity. It must be created so that what is necessary for humanity, it has already proved to be so from our course here, can happen. This World Fellowship of Schools must be created. Please see what is meant by this fellowship in all international life in the right sense. I would like in this request to round off today what in a very different way in our course has spoken to humanity through those who were here and of whom we have the hope and the wish that they carry it out into the world. The World Fellowship of Schools can be the answer of the world to what was put before it like a question a question taken from the real forces of human evolution, that is, human history. 
So let what can happen for the World Fellowship of Schools, in accordance with the conviction you have been able to gain here, happen. In this there rings out what I wanted to say today. The end of Lecture 1